After conducting quite an extensive religious survey over a long period of time in the United States, George Gallup came to this conclusion. Never before in the history of the United States has the gospel of Jesus Christ made such inroads while at the same time making so little difference in the way we live. What is the need of the hour? The need of the hour is discipleship for you and me who are hearing these words of Jesus Christ this morning. We heard last week that it's a good thing to be curious, but that curiosity needs to lead with all that information of fact, death and resurrection, to being convinced that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, that he did die and he was resurrected to prove he had the ability to forgive sin. We need to move from curious to that second stage of convinced. But part two this morning, it's not enough just to be convinced and sit on the sideline. For if you really want to experience fellowship with Jesus Christ, if you really want to be fruitful in your Christian experience, if you really want to see what fulfillment is all about, you've got to move to part two, the third stage of discipleship, and that is the committed stage. And that's what we'll be addressing this day. The need of the hour is to become a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. In John chapter 12, verse 25, it was he, Jesus, who said, he who loves his life loses it. Loving your life, that's not talking about a healthy or unhealthy self-image. That's not where Christ was. He said, you've got to experience giving your life away, losing it in the sense You've you, you got to throw it in his direction. He's the one who bought you at a very high cost. And he's the one that will give you fulfillment and fellowship and fruitfulness. And he wants every single one of us to experience that through being a committed disciple. If you don't, you'll lose its significance, your life that is. You'll lose the impact. You'll never really discover why he made you and remade you into the person he has that you might find out all it is to really live in him, that abundant life. Our uh, passage this morning has everything to do with being a committed disciple. In fact, what you'll see in this passage is that there are precisely three conditions that he lists for you and me. And you'll never uh, comply or obey them perfectly, but moving in this direction and saying, yes, Lord, this is what I want to do, makes all the difference moving in the right direction. Ann and I have discovered as disciples of Christ, committed disciples, that oftentimes you could call it three steps forward and two steps back, but we're moving in the right direction. So let's see what that right direction is this morning becoming a committed disciple. Our passage is found in Luke chapter 14. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles or turn in your punch in your smartphone this passage. Luke chapter 14. Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother 
and wife and children. What's he saying? And brothers and sisters, just even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Notice the underline. You'll see it three times in this passage. Verse 27, you'll see it a second time. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, two parables, for which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule and mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Second parable, or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with double that amount? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and begs or asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple, there it is a third time, who does not give up all his own possessions. I wonder what that means. And to conclude, therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless in this agricultural economy, he was saying, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. It's a waste. He who has ears, and I hope you have ears to really hear what God is saying to each of us in this conditions of discipleship, conditions of being a committed disciple of Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, Jesus Christ is not saying you cannot be a Christian, but he is saying in this passage, you cannot be a committed disciple if you do not follow these three conditions. And those three conditions are all involved in verse 26, 27, and verse 33. You cannot be, you cannot be, and you will not be my disciple unless you comply with these three things. Luke 14, let's see what these things mean and let's look at each condition, shall we? The first condition, the first condition with this key phrase, you cannot be my disciple, is in verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate all these who mean the most surrounding you, you cannot be a disciple. This is the condition Jesus Christ must come before everyone else. It's the principle of unrivaled commitment. The word we choke on here is obviously the word hate. When we think of hate, we think of emotion. We think of uh, engagement on an emotional level. But actually this word is different from that. And how can I conclude that? By looking at the way it is used. In Contradiction to that in the Old Testament, we're told to, first of all, honor our mother and father. That would be in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, verse 12. And as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, now the New Testament, as he repeats that, it is the only command with a promise. Honor your mother and father that your days may be long on this earth. Man, kids, let me tell you something. You want to live a little bit longer? You want to keep dad from taking you out too? 
Hey, honor them. It's incredible how much that will bring contentment, joy, satisfaction, and a lack of fear and tension in your own life. It will work. But the Bible is clear. You're not supposed to hate them. You're supposed to honor them. But when you look at the scriptures, you also see Jesus talking about the father who selected Jacob over Esau. And what does he say? Do you recall? Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Now, did he hate Esau? No. He selected, he chose Esau to be that conduit of his blessing to the Jewish people. He did not select the firstborn, but rather the one who was holding on to him. And the secondborn, that was God's sovereign choice. Now we're getting to the meaning of hate. There's such an exaggeration in the Lord's mind between who he selects and who he does not. So this is the language, not of emotion. This is the la language of volition. This is the language of exaggerated contrast. I have love, I have loved him. I have not hated him. I have chosen him, but the one I did not choose, I have set aside, meaning I have not made him a priority. This, it seems strong to say hate, but yet that's the way it is used. It's the language, volitional language of exaggerated contrast. Jesus must come first. No rivals. Christ is present in every single one of us who has put his trust in him. Every one of you who have moved from curious to convinced, you are the residents in of Jesus Christ. But to move forward, to become a committed disciple, it's not enough for Christ just to be present or even prominent as he is in many. Christ says, I want to be preeminent in your life and I bought you with a price. I own you your mind. Follow what I say. I know what's best in your life. Christ wants to be preeminent. He wants there to be not a close second. That's what it means. When he says this, in my estimation, he puts his thumb on a vital obstacle. Those people closest to us who can trip us up and could be too high of a hurdle to jump oftentimes. I, uh, my family of origin, I grew up with a dad coming out of World War II and a mom also that uh, wanted to do well in life. My dad was a Christian and my dad married my mom and, and uh, she never came to know Christ. And I did a funeral at 88 years of age and I, uh, I so begged her, mom, I don't want to go to heaven without you. She said, honey, I, I just can't put my trust in anyone but myself. A bit hurt and scarred in life, I guess so. But uh, my dad was a go-getter, aggressive, sold clothing, really wanted to do better than his parents had done, have a better car and a bigger home. That was the American way. Dad, as I said, was a Christian and 
we would go to church, three kids and dad, most of the time, and I would see him on those plates in the Baptist Church in Austin, Terrytown Baptist and Hyde Park Baptist, Dr. Ralph Smith, and I, I can remember dad hurrying in his pocket when that offering plate was coming down the row. A little bit ominous compared to the basket. Not really. Same thing. And I remember uh, a lot of things, but particularly when I was a second-year guy at uh, seminary. Talking with my dad, I was just 23 years old, and uh, I, I just really wanted to talk to him. And I said, Dad, heart to heart, why, why haven't you really made strides to live what you believe? And I tried to put that in as palatable terms as I could. Dad, in other words, why have you just wanted to go after, you know, this stuff and not the Savior quite as much? Listen to his response to me. He said, son, if I ever really live for Jesus Christ, your mother would leave me. I didn't know what to do with that. I was a young dude, 23 years old. I've been married two years, you know. And here my dad is saying, if I really live for Christ, I'd lose your mom. She'd take off on me. I didn't know what to say. I know what to say now. I know what to say now. Dad, maybe if you live for Jesus Christ and you made him your priority, as the scripture says, Jesus doesn't make mistakes. Maybe she would have been attracted to that authenticity, that real deal in you. And maybe it would have attracted her to Jesus Christ. But the way you lived, Dad, there was a duplicity. Jesus Christ is putting his thumb on that issue. Christ must come first. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to love your wife. You're going to love her a whole lot more because Christ is going to be working in you. And he's going to help you love her through his strength. I remember when... Uh, I was doing discipleship as a pastor. I always had a group of guys that I, I just loved doing it. And uh, somewhere along the life of the church, these seven guys and I went down to Belize. But the reason we did is because I had been there and I got invited back and I said, can we head to a pastor's conference and kind of bring this group of disciples? And they said, we'd love it. This guy by the name of Brady, who was a Southern Baptist missionary, we'd love it. Come on. I gave those guys that opportunity, and I just, I saw them looking at raw meat, and they were hungry German shepherds. They thought, this is great. We would love to do that. I said, well, great, but you know what? I really want you to communicate with your wife about this, fill her in completely of how long we're going to be and how safe it's going to be and all that kind of stuff, and, and the fulfilling part of it, and your disciples, and this will be great. Come back next week and tell me the response. They did, and everybody but one was looking at me with the biggest smile and just excitement in their eyes. And I said to Doug, Doug, your, your head's kind of hung a little there, and tell me what, what's going on. He said, well, I'm not going to go. I'm going to say, you're, okay, all right. I mean, this happens, uh, but you know, can you express why? He said, well, Sherry doesn't want me to go. And I said, well, okay, why does Sherry not want you to go? And, and he kind of talked about stuff like guerrilla warfare and, 
And I asked him if that was spelled G-U-E-R or, you know, G-O-R, gorilla. I, I didn't know what he was talking about because there wasn't any warfare. There's nothing going on, really. And it was safe as it could be. And he said, well, she just doesn't want me to, you know, do that right now in my life. So I asked him this. I said, Doug, no, that's not my business, but you're in my group and everybody wants to go. And so let me just ask you, do you want to go? Do you feel like God wants you to go more than that? He says, I do, but I'm going to have to just wait. People, he was putting in a wrong way his wife before the Lord. And he had that opportunity to express who he really was and what he really believed and what God really wanted to do through him. But it was a second marriage and he wanted to save the relationship rather than make a priority of really living for Jesus Christ and go on this easy missionary trip where they speak even the same language. They were under the crown until 1980 of uh, England. And so nine months later, Doug unfortunately uh, split with uh, Sherry. It was, I don't think that's the cause of it. I'm just saying, if you live that way, you suffer the consequences. I really think that Christ gives us such incredible joy and peace when we follow him and makes relationships work better if we obey him in what he's leading us to do. I heard C.S. Lewis say this, put first things first and second things are thrown in. Put second things first and you lose first and second things. Wiser words could not be said. He lost his close walk with Christ and lost another marriage relationship as well. Christ needs to come first, folks, and that's what Christ is saying. That doesn't mean I don't communicate with Ann. I communicate as best as I can, and I'm patient, and I work with her. Fortunately, you know, she is just so excited about being a committed disciple, too. She says, why can't I go? <laughs> Honey, there'll be those times. So for 15 years, I took her with me. <laughs> but the first condition... Christ must come before even those people closest to us. The second condition is in verse 27. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The condition number two is that Jesus Christ must come before myself. And this is the principle of unceasing cross-bearing. And there is so much spongy thinking out there when it comes to cross-bearing. You know, uh, people are saying, well, you know, I've, I've got this bad back, you know, in the lumbar, three, four, and five. Yeah, I know that. I've had surgery there. That's not my cross to bear. And I don't have diabetes, which I've heard is a cross to bear. I even had an older lady one time come up to me and say, oh, you know, uh, I'm bearing the cross of fallen arches. And, you know, you just kind of... Mm, not really, not really. And what about uh, having a difficult boss with which you must work and function? You know, that irregular person that really doesn't care quite as much and doesn't convey very much compassion and appreciation and affirmation and maybe even a paycheck. It's kind of difficult, isn't it? But that's not your cross to bear. It's not a physical ailment. 
and it's not an irregular person in your life. And it's not an idiosyncrasy or a little funny personality quirk that you might have. In a joking way, that may be someone's else, someone else's cross, but no, it's not yours. Now, what's wrong with all these things I'm talking about? These are all involuntary. And when we're talking about cross-bearing, we're talking about that which is completely voluntary. You can make that choice. The cross is voluntary. What's cross-bearing? Here's my definition. Cross-bearing is complete surrender to the will of God. Complete surrender to the will of God, no matter what. Anytime, anywhere, here I am. You bought me with a price, I am yours. I think a problem we have is that we want to be in charge. <laughs> we all have that. It's called insecurity as we exercise dominion on this earth. Luke 9.23, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, there it is again, and follow me. What does it mean to deny yourself? If you're aesthetic, try to be sort of mystical and, 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 and refuse certain things to eat. I guess you'd have to give up Bluebell and I'd have to give up Cheetos too. <laughs> then I wouldn't be a very happy person. But the point is, that's not what Jesus Christ is talking about. He's talking about denying yourself something much bigger. And that is self-lordship. Saying, I'm in charge. I'm going to do what I want to do and not what you want me to do. You've got to deny that. and You've got to say no. I'm going to say no to me being in charge, the CEO of my life. I'm going to take everything to him. He bought me with an, a high cost with his body and blood, forgave me of all my sin, was resurrected to prove he had the power to forgive and cleanse and heal. And so I'm going to seek him, 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Had a great elder in, in our church, a VP with Texaco, you know, in oil country, Houston. And I remember Jerry saying, this is the basis, Bob, of all my decisions. It's 1 Corinthians 6, 19. I am his residence in, and he is my owner. And I seek him for decisions he would like me to follow through on with what is his, me. And I love that. I've never forgotten Jerry telling me. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. That's the basis. Deny yourself that self-lordship. Question. As you consider this cross-bearing, total surrender to the will of God, no matter what, do you have any conditions on Christ? Hey, when I get a great nest egg and I'm 60 years old, that's when I'm really going to live for Christ. Got any conditions? When I have this much in my savings account portfolio, then watch me tear it up for Jesus. May I say after 50 years in ministry with people, that just doesn't happen. Do it now or it won't. Make that decision now to follow after Christ. No conditions. Your will 
for my life. Gethsemane, no matter what the pain. And it's not going to mean physical death for you. It did for Christ, but probably not you. Ann and I traveled all over restricted countries in Asia, in India, in Vietnam, in, in Kazakhstan, all over Cambodia, Myanmar. You got it. And you know what? We never were accosted a single time in 15 years. They love the U.S. dollar. In fact, Cambodia used instead of the real, they used the U.S. dollar as their currency. Cambodia. But say this, not my will, but yours be done, as Jesus said in Gethsemane, facing the challenge of that great decision to die in our place. Got any conditions? Rudyard Kipling said this, if a man doesn't get what he wants in life, it's a sign that either he didn't want it bad enough or that he tried to bargain over the price. Don't bargain. You've been bought. Give it your life, all of it, no matter what. And you'll find incredible fellowship, intimacy that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, being conformed to his death. You will find intimacy of fellowship. You'll find incredible fruitfulness in your life like you've never seen it. And you'll find fulfillment. You know what fulfillment is? Fulfillment, I think, for me at least, is discovering what God can do in and through this this peanut butter jar of a vessel for his glory that I could never do on my own. That's fulfillment to watch God work through me just saying, here I am, use me. That's what the Lord wants for us. You know, uh, we've got a problem here in America. And we've had a problem everywhere in the world with this idea of unceasing cross-bearing. We, uh, we want to say to the Lord, here's my plan, bless it. Rather than here's my life, use it. People, give him your life and say, just use it, I'm showing up. I'm available, do whatever you want to do with me. That is unceasing cross-bearing. Now, condition number three. Jesus Christ must come before things. The principle of unreserved cost. And there's a lot of prosperity we're looking at in America, even though your portfolio has shrunk a bit recently. Verse 33, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does, who does not give up all his own possessions. Question, give away or give up? I'm going to go with give up, which has everything to do with whose is it really? It's yours. It's a resource from you, Lord, that you own. Like the cattle on a thousand hills, it's yours. One of the guys that taught me this more than any other was someone whom God blessed in our church. And I saw this guy start out with Conoco, then own a company, and just expand. And he went from millionaire to the other big term above it. And he never talked about it in terms of trust or security. It was always Lord's resources that he uses greatly for the kingdom. I love that. It's a resource. It's not something in which I find comfort. 
or security, but opportunity in others' lives. The ESV translates this uh, renounce. I like that too. I renounce the ownership. I don't hold tightly to the deed, to the title. I give it to him, every bit of it. Who owns the title deed of the things that you are a manager of? Now, I want you to do something. I want you to hold out your hand. Everybody. Everything that you have is either a tool or an idol. And I want you to think right now, what is a possession that means a great deal to you? I mean, you really have affection for this possession. You don't want to lose it. Now, place it in that hand that's outstretched. Now, close your hand around that possession. And that possession has now become an idol. You're asking, what is idolatry? Anything you ask to do for you, what only God can do. That's idolatry. Now open it up, and it becomes a tool in the hand of God. Everything that we have, folks, needs to be that tool in the hand of a powerful God who wants to use what he owns in the first place. Possessions. Possessions. When uh, I took my first missions trip, it was at the invitation of a former professor of mine at Dallas Seminary. And Dr. Phil Hook then became, you know, 10 years CEO with uh, Pine Cove. And he said, you want to go? My first time to Belize. So I was there three times. So I went to Belize with uh, Phil. And Phil was not known for a lot of detail. And so he just said, come on, and I'll see you at the airport. And uh, so fine, we did that. And... Uh, I didn't know what to bring. So to know me, to know my past, is to know that my dad was in clothing and he did well with it. He was actually, if any of you have seen uh, Novak Djokovic win Wimbledon, notice what he wears, that alligator shirt. That was called chemise Lacoste, French for shirt. My dad was the first salesman in Texas with Lacoste in the 50s. So we had all of this stuff. And it was good stuff. It was good stuff. And then he went and he worked for Hart Chaffner Marks. Any of you older guys know that those suits are really good clothing. As we used to say, good threads. So what did I take down to Belize? Lacoste and Hart Chaffner and Marks. <laughs> Third world country, Bob, wake up. But you know, I was young, give me a break. I didn't know and that's what I had. And by the way, in that day, uh, you know, we preached with suits and stuff like that, too. So had that. And it was great. It was great because I could go into my dad's trunk and get really nice stuff for 40%. That was God's will for my life. It was wonderful. <laughs> so I took a suitcase full of great slacks, Lacoste shirts, stuff like that. And I'm, and I'm teaching these guys for probably eight or nine days. And I noticed this one particular guy on the front row. Big smile, just a captivating, you know, countenance. And his name was Sidney. And I, after about four days, I, I noticed, I was a little slow, but I noticed he wore the same thing every single day. And it was a shock to this American 
I thought, wow, he really likes that shirt. <laughs> so after those days and a break, I said, Sydney, uh, just noticing, you know, what you're wearing, it really looks nice. Uh, you've, you've worn it a couple of days. He says, it's what I have. I said, well, I know you have it, but what do you mean it's what I have? And he said, well, this is my one shirt, and these are my only pants. Really? This is the same way in Cuba. Going to Santiago de Cuba and teaching at the theological seminary there. That's all they had. I opened up the, the, the closet. There, there were like two things hanging in there. So I said, Sidney, that's really what you have. And so I decided I'd pray about it that night. And as I was praying about, Lord, should I give him some stuff? Lord said that was not audibly, but, you know, kind of impression upon me. Like, you want to go to heaven? Do it, Bob. That kind of idea. <laughs> and so uh, I said, okay, okay. But Lord, watch this. Watch my depravity ooze out. Lord, he ain't going to appreciate these kind of clothes. Bob, give them. I died for people that are eternal, and none of those clothes are. Use them, they're resources. So, okay, okay, Lord. And I, when I left that week, I opened up the suitcase and gave them all everything, except my underwear. That, you don't want to share that. You don't want to do that. <laughs> so I gave them all that stuff. People hear me. I have never felt so free in my entire life is when I used stuff, loved people, and used things. And I gave it. And it was just a resource. It wasn't to provide me with importance or comfort and all those kind of things. I used it for the Lord's glory, and Sidney was blessed. I'll never forget being in Myanmar, and we were giving away T-shirts from Klein High School in spring from coaches in our church, and I remember... Uh, they had, you know, weight training, and the kids in, you know, in, in uh, Spring Klein, they, they didn't care quite as much about getting a T-shirt with barbells on it. You know, they, they wanted the more expensive stuff, I guess. And so I got all these T-shirts, and I bring them to the guys. I'll never forget this one guy that said to me, uh, well, you know, he was kind of extra large, and most of the guys were small and medium, not, not even too many larges. And so uh, he looked at my shirt, and I had just been given a shirt from a Ryder Cup. Bahala from my brother-in-law. In fact, I had to pay for it. He didn't just give it to me. <laughs> and uh, he looked at me, and, when, and I looked at him and said, I'm sorry, I'll have to do something for you. He said, I like your shirt. <laughs> no, you don't like my shirt. <laughs> no, let me convince you, you don't like my shirt. You quit looking at me. You really like my shirt? So right then and there, I said, well, let me finish wearing it the rest of the standard yours. What are you going to do with your stuff, folks? You use it. You give it. You build other people up. When Nan and I were doing a ministry for Grace Bible Church in Nacogdoches, uh, it got really cold as we got there, and the guy who was kind of hosting, Dr. Rick Hurst, said, here, use this uh, sweatshirt of mine. And I said, uh, well, Rick, uh, thank you. And I looked at it, and it was Broadmoor. You ever been to the Broadmoor? Don't raise your hand. But Ann and I have just driven. We've seen it. You know, it's a pretty expensive joint. Nice hotel. So 
I wore that Broadmoor sweatshirt at the end of the weekend. I gave it back to Rick. He says, no, keep it. I said, no, I mean, I, I don't need it. I've got plenty of, you know, keep it. I said, why? He said, because I've learned in my life the only antidote to greed is to give things away. People hear that. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Resources. We've got a prosperity problem in America. We want to hold on thinking that by the amount of possessions I have, I have significance in life. And Jesus said in Luke 12, 15, beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not only when you, even when you have an abundance, your life does not consist of your possessions. Use them, give them away. So important to do. So what I want to say is unreserved cost. Jesus Christ must come before those things. They need to be tools, not idols. Hear this from... Uh, a particular fellow by the name of Thomas Carlyle. Thomas Carlyle, in the old days, he was called a, not just an historian from Scotland, but uh, an essayist. He wrote well. He said, adversity is hard on a man. But for every 100 men who can withstand adversity, excuse me, adver well, adversity, I will show you one who can withstand prosperity. A hundred men can withstand adversity compared to one who can withstand prosperity as a Christian. Albert Schweitzer said, if you're not willing to give away your possessions, you don't own them, they own you. Three conditions of discipleship. Christ must come before those closest to you, yourself and things. The key to the passage, really, the two parables one of the parables, and we've read in 28 to 30, is the parable of the unfinished tower. The activity in which they're engaging is an attempt to build that tower with insufficient materials and money. The second parable is the parable of the defeated army. 10,000 versus 20,000, I'm gonna sue for peace. Think of the activity now, because Christ did not waste words. In the first parable, you have the activity of building. In the second parable, you have the activity of battling. Now, does that remind you of anything? Jesus Christ in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. Jesus is in the business of building his church, and battling the enemy, Satan. I ask you this morning, do you want to be a part of his work? He'll enlist you in a split second as a committed disciple. But a committed disciple is one that places Christ before things, themselves, and those closest to them. If you really want fellowship, if you really want that intimacy with Christ, if you really want a fruitful Christian experience and discover all that Christ wants to do, your potential with him working in you, fulfillment, you can have that. And there's nothing to compare with it. That's when life takes on an abundance and meaning and impact. Then Christ must come before those three things. Others, 
yourself and things. I hope this has stimulated some opportunity for you to decide, Lord, I know who you are and I can trust you, but the issue is not can you, but will you? And with that, I'm going to say something that's one of my favorite things to say that I borrowed from Chuck Swindoll. God has never had to say, oops. He won't make a mistake. We've, we've lived it, forged this faith of ours for over 52 years. Lord's never made a mistake. And he won't with you. Make those decisions to be a committed disciple and you will never regret that decision. Father, thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts that we might make decisions that please you and profit us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Bob, for that clear clarion call this morning. Uh, and now we're going to move into a time and close our service with a time of invitation. And it is based on that fact. It's based on the fact that uh, we know that God's word goes out and does not return void. Uh, and so we ask uh, ourselves this morning in this time, uh, where are we in this standing uh, before Heavenly Father? Perhaps if this conversation was a little lost on you because you hadn't even taken the first step of accepting his free gift of salvation in the first place, uh, if that's the condition you stand in today, may today be the day of salvation. Ask whoever brought you here or come forward and ask one of us. We'd love to answer uh, any questions about what it looks like to actually have a right relationship with him. Or maybe you have that right relationship, but you realize that there's still plenty of other things that we're still holding on to and making them ours. And maybe he's calling those things out of us. Or maybe you've met with Lance or the Welcome Home team, uh, and you know you need to do this uh, life's pursuit of being a committed disciple alongside some others committed on the same goal. Uh, and if you've gone through the process and want to make church membership known, now's the time to do it. Um, I'm, of course, going to ask you to stand and take a posture of singing, um, but really, you can remain in any posture that the Lord puts into your heart. If you need to come forward and pray up front, if you need to gather with others at the right side of the room, either both now or after the service, wherever it is and however he is leading, may you use this time to respond.